Welcome to the internet, and welcome to the Dark Horse podcast live stream number 107? 106. 106. 106. All right, we don't even have to discuss Prime. No. I already know it's off the table. Indeed. Yep. Um, 106, yeah. Well, all right, that's a lot of live streams. Uh, we've got a lot going on in the world. In fact, almost nothing that was true last week is still true. We're in a whole new universe, so that's uh, kind of interesting. Yeah, it's getting a little. It's it's it's, it's a little much, isn't it, guys? Are you I, sick of it? Yeah, I'm 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 done. Yeah, I'm getting pretty done. Yeah, they Maybe say would, yep. they say jump, and I say, how high are these people? They really want us <laughs> jumping. <laughs> That's good. I like Thank that. You. That was that was good. That was good. Okay, we're going to talk about a lot of things today. It's you know, it's increasingly just beyond challenging to know how to choose among the very many topics that are popping up and you know what what both of us would love to be doing is focusing on scientific hypotheses and uh, would-be truths and assessing whether or not they are truths. And um, there's a certain amount of that possible in the modern chaotic world, but largely we're stuck in the land of uh, sort of social arbitration, which is um, harder to find our way out of and also much less satisfying to spend any time in at all. Yes, in a world where so much of belief is completely untethered from anything that's like actual evidence, it's very hard to talk about how evidence might modify beliefs and things like that. Right, because, really... I, I'm sorry, but you know, at the point that you, know, you say, okay, well, this is what we're being told is true, and you assess it, and I say, oh, well, actually, there's this other thing. Like, well, we, we couldn't have known that because you wouldn't share it with us, and why wouldn't you share it with us? That in itself, not sharing data, not sharing evidence... Uh, in advance of being asked, nay, in some cases forced to come to a conclusion about that evidence, is anti-scientific, as we have said here before. Uh, but then, uh, but then there are traps, whether or not they're premeditated or not. Wherein, ah, because you said the thing uh, back then, based on what we had told you, and that was wrong, uh, you must be wrong. So, well, well, no, I'm, I'm actually not thinking of anything in particular here. Just the fact that we are never given a complete set of information to work with in this modern environment. I prefer to think of it as we have been dragged into someone else's psychosis. <laughs> it's not an enjoyable psychosis. It's just kind of psychotic. Yeah. You know, actually, I was thinking about this before we get into like the opening housekeeping ads and such. Um, there's this thing I used to say to you about we had, you know, we were unfortunate enough, as really everyone is at some point, to find ourselves in the company of people who we uh, came to understand. You know, I'm thinking of one person in particular, came to understand was a sociopath. And this was actually only in, over in my world. This had very little to do with, with your, your world at the time. But of course, we were, we were sharing worlds mostly. And I had been trying to make sense of all of the chaos that was happening around me suddenly in this very you know, carefully curated community that was full of trust and warmth and love, really. And then suddenly it wasn't. And suddenly there were a lot of things that were that were going wrong. And I, I said, you know, I, I, think, I think a rubric is if suddenly everything that you thought was making sense isn't. You know, you should look around for a point source on that. And when it's an individual, it might well be 
someone with, you know, a cluster B personality disorder, you know, someone who's an actual sociopath. And I think in that case, it was like, oh, all roads trace back to such and such person. And, you know, that turns out to be the source of all of the misinformation, the disinformation, and the social manipulations and such, and clear that person from the equation. And voila, things begin to make sense again. And you can't do that when the would-be sociopath or psychopath is in fact a society-wide disorder. So, you know, look around, look, see if you can pinpoint a thing that is driving the chaos. That doesn't mean that you can just exclude it from your life the way you can to some degree when it's an individual human being. But I think it is, uh, there is an analogy to be made there. Uh, I will make one modification. Yeah. Cluster B personality disorder or a perverse incentive big enough to create the same phenomenon. That manifests with those same personality traits, but not necessarily because of an actual uh, mental disorder. Right. Yeah. And in fact, yeah. what, you get, yeah. what you get is somebody is generating a fiction far enough from reality that people who have signed on to this sort of on-ramp stuff are left with you know a giant gap they'd have to jump to get back to reality land. And so it's sort of like the person creates an artificial um, hazard and then sells you the solution to it in the form of a narrative that makes neat sense of things. Right. Um, finding, and, uh, finding it difficult to get your bearings? I have a narrative right here designed specially for you and the world that I created for you. Right. In fact, I have these very excellent bearings. They're very high quality. <laughs> the tolerances are narrow. They're, they're wonderful bearings. They're and not spherical, but <laughs> you take what you can get. Yeah, they're oblong. But other than that, beautiful. Beautiful. All right. Uh, so we're we're going to be talking about a number of things today, but first, um, we are on both YouTube and Odyssey. The chat is on Odyssey. You may ask questions for the second hour of the show, which will be a, a second live stream at darkhorsesubmissions.com. Uh, tomorrow is the monthly private Q&A at my Patreon, which we encourage you to join. It's, we have a lot of fun with it. It's two hours starting at 11 a.m. Pacific, and uh, the questions have already been asked, but it's a small enough uh community that we can actually interact with the chat and respond to things that happen in the chat. And and before we get onto the three ads that we have this week, we have new products at uh, the Dark Horse store. And we are going to show you um, some of these. Um, yeah, you may show my screen now, Zach, for reasons that are uh, totally arcane to me. This is showing up in Spanish, so it's as if I am trying to buy things in Spanish. That's fine. Um, I'm I'm Wait, okay with that. What <laughs> like, Spanish? But you know the, the products are in English. It's just the you know. Do you want to anyway? Doesn't matter. Um, just for those. Se vende camisas con yeah. All right. I, I don't know if that's not going to work. That's not. It could. Uh, okay. <laughs> so we've got four. We have we have four new designs this week for those of you who might be interested in in gifts for yourself or your family and friends. We have, uh, and in all of these, they're available in shirts and hoodies and and maybe tote bags and such. We have saddle up the direwolves. We ride tonight with this beautiful drawing. Again, our artist, um, who, because he was working so hard on these this week, um, has asked us to wait a week before introducing his website to the world, but we will, we will share, um, a little bit more about him next week. So we have saddle up the dire wolves. We ride tonight. That's Bonus points them. for anyone who nails the reference. We ride tonight. Okay. Okay. Yeah. It's, it doesn't, it's not limited to Gen X. You're much more likely to get it if you're a Gen X, but it's not limited. It's open to everyone, even, even, you know, millennials, frankly. Is it possible that I don't know the reference? Oh, very, very likely. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, okay. 
so we also have uh, the YouTube community guidelines, because you can't handle the truth. Uh, the description for which, written by, is it going to be my truly if it's yours? I don't, I've never heard my truly, but <laughs> at, after the show, I'm going to do a little diagram and see if I can't yeah. puzzle it out. So the description on this one, um, written by Brett, YouTube's community guidelines have been proven safe and effective, reducing insight transmission by 90% and decreasing severe cases of consciousness by two thirds. They are the key to controlling outbreaks of mental independence so we can all return to reflexive consumption. YouTube community guidelines, because you can't handle the truth. That's, that's, I was in a mood. <laughs> I mean, that's awesome. That's awesome. We got a lot more, of course, that we've had up. We haven't taken any down. And then we have, we have this guy, Epic Tabby. Um, that is our, that is a rendering of our very own Fairfax. That is our, and so the renderings shown on the Teespring site aren't very good to avoid, I think, to avoid theft of the art, but, um, these, these are, beautiful high quality um i think this is pen and ink so we have epic tabby and then the fourth one that we have that's new now scroll 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 is uh book burning in the digital era this one does not have any um oh i can't it's not actually zoomed in quite enough this one doesn't have any words on it but it's a for, for those just listening uh it's a it's a pyre of books with flames but the smoke is zeros and ones so um, those are the those are the four new things that we've got out this week: book burning, the digital era, the epic tabby, uh, the uh, uh, saddle up the direwolves we ride tonight, and YouTube community guidelines because you can't handle the truth. All right, Zachary, if I may have my screen back, thank you. So those those are all available at the Dark Horse store store.darkhorsepodcast.org, and we have three ads for you this week. We are as always. Very grateful to our sponsors. Very grateful to our sponsors. Uh, we have Vivo Barefoot, Mudwater, and Hometics this week. Brett, you in that order. Off. In that order. Oh my God! All right. Well, I'm going to tell you about Vivo Barefoot. Uh, most shoes are not made for your feet. They are made for someone's idea of what feet should look like and do, and be constrained by. And usually, that someone doesn't actually know feet or what they can do. Vivo Barefoot, in contrast, knows feet and isn't driven by fashion. It will not make your feet feel like hooves. We love these shoes. They are beyond comfortable. The tactile feedback from surfaces that you're walking on is amazing, and they cause no pain at all because there is no pressure point forcing your feet into odd positions. They are fantastic. Your feet are the product of millions of years of, of human evolution. We evolved to walk, move, and run barefoot, by modern, uh, but modern shoes that are overly cushioned and strangely shaped have negatively impacted foot function and are contributing to health crises. One in which people move less than they might, in part because their shoes make their feet hurt. Vivo Barefoot shoes are designed wide to provide natural stability, thin to enable you to feel more and flexible to help you build your natural strength from the ground up. Foot strength increases by 60% in a matter of months just by walking around in them. We both keep running into people out in the world who comment on our Vivo Barefoot shoes uh, that we are wearing. They are wearing them too. It's like an odd little club, but growing. Once people start wearing these shoes, they don't seem to stop. This has really been our experience. We really like putting them on and going out and kind of feeling our way through the world. It's a nifty experience. All right. So go to Vfoot, Vivo. Mm, let's try that <laughs> sentence from the top. Go to vivobarefoot.com slash darkhorse to get an exclusive offer of 20% off. 
Additionally, all new customers get a 100-day free trial so that you can see if you love them as much as we do. That's Vivo Barefoot, V-I-V-O-B-A-R-E-F-O-O-T dot com slash Dark Horse. Okay, our second sponsor of the week is Mudwater, M-U-D-W-T-R. It's a coffee alternative made with mushrooms, herbs, and spices. It's got a seventh the caffeine of cup of coffee, and you get energy without the anxiety, jitters, or crash of coffee. Each ingredient was added with intention. It's got cacao and chai, lion's mane mushrooms, cordyceps, shaga, and reishi, all fungus, turmeric, and cinnamon, and and more. I will say this. I do enjoy my coffee, and I have it most mornings, but I don't need it, and that's intentional. I've spent time places where coffee was not or might not be available, so it's important to me not to become an addict, basically, to lose functionality if I can't get it. So I wasn't sure that I needed or wanted this product. I don't I don't get anxiety jitters or crash without my coffee. I just don't have coffee that day. But I really love this stuff. Uh, I'm a sucker for chocolate, and there's definitely a hint of the cacao in it, the chocolate. Same for their masala chai blend, which includes not just the turmeric and cinnamon I mentioned, uh, but also ginger, cardamom, black pepper, nutmeg, and cloves. Uh, it's a spice mix that goes really well with the season also. Uh, so Mudwater is 100% USDA organic, non-GMO, gluten-free, vegan, and kosher certified. Furthermore, they donate a percentage of revenue to MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. No, this product is not psychedelic. And work with Pachama, which pays monthly to reforestation efforts to ensure that they have a net positive carbon footprint. So visit mudwater.com slash darkhorse to support the show and use darkhorse at checkout for $5 off. That's mudwtr.com slash darkhorse. Use darkhorse at checkout for $5 off. And... Our final sponsor, excuse me, our final sponsor for the day is Homedics. They make an air purifier that actually lives up to expectations. We have spoken often and I have also written about the health benefits of being outside in the fresh air. Science knows some but not all of why being outside is so good for you, but sometimes you can't be outside and some indoor spaces aren't amenable to being totally cleared out by opening windows, at least not at all times. And if, for instance, you've got pets in your home, there's a good chance you've sometimes got smells that you don't want. Enter Homedics Total Clean Air Purifier. It uses true HEPA filtration and UVC technology, capturing 99.9% of the bacteria, virus, mold, and fungus that were assessed in third-party testing, as well as pollen and smoke. In our experience, it reduces all sorts of pet odors, as well as lingering cooking smells that are wonderful at the time, but maybe you don't want to wake up the next morning still smelling yesterday's turkey and potatoes, for instance. This air purifier cleans large rooms fast and is quite inexpensive compared to similar items on the market. It's compact, easy to carry, and not ugly either. It also has both a low setting that is silent and three different light settings, one of which is no lights on even when the machine is running, which is terrific. There are no unavoidable blue lights associated with this device. So whether you're dealing with allergies or just looking to keep your house smelling fresh at times of year when you can't throw open all the doors and windows, go to homedics slash darkhorse and use promo code darkhorse and you'll receive a free replacement filter with the purchase of your air purifier up to a 99 degree value. Make sure though that you add the replacement filter to your cart or else the promo code won't work. That's a free replacement filter when you go to h-o-m-e-d-i-c-s dot com slash darkhorse and then use the promo code darkhorse. That's our ads for the week. All right. All right. Did you want to start us off? Ah, um, sorry. Start us off uh, with the topic as discussed. 
Or I could start us off, but not with the topic that you discussed. Ah, right. Exactly. <laughs> All of which has got to be super fascinating to those listening who have no, not yet been in on the discussions. No, it, I think this is, this. they get to look a little bit behind the scenes, see what's going on backstage, the it's rigging, the wiring. It's just that fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well yep. said. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, sure. I'll start off. So I wanted to start off with something that emerged last week. Um, Zach, do you want to put up the, I believe it's a Forbes article that I sent you. All right. Yes. So we are. I can ne- also start us off if you prefer. Uh, with a totally different topic, though. I think we can we can do this as Zach is working his way towards towards the article. Okay. All right. So what emerged last week was the claim that we had passed a grim milestone, which it is does seem like the word of the decade. The grim milestone. Grim. 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 It's grim news. I think grim milestone is good, actually. Yeah. Um, especially because it, it kind of it evokes um, a headstone as well, because sure. milestones and headstones often look alike. They do. But in any case, here you can see the claim that uh, COVID 19 deaths for 2021 surpassed the toll from 2020. And obviously, in the US, it's in the US yes, this is the US, and this is obviously um, mid November meaning that any deaths that accumulate after this uh, will be an excess in the 2021 number. Mm-hmm. Now, what I, I heard this reported everywhere. What I did not hear reported anywhere was a proper interpretation of this. Now, I will offer the following caveat. The data on COVID-19 and everything related is tremendously distorted. You don't say I do say. Really? And so it is possible that this number means nothing at all because the way that it was formulated is not robust. But let's take it at face value. Just if I may, one of the ways, and we've talked about many of the ways that the data are not, um, are, are impossible to interpret and largely we aren't even, uh, they aren't even made available to us, the data. But one of the things that is true that we were hearing about early in the pandemic and didn't pay much heed to, but have since paid a lot of heed to, is the idea that um, some deaths are being attributed to COVID when people died with, but not necessarily of COVID. The with versus of distinction is actually crucial. Right. There appears to be, and we can defend this, but there appears to be uh, wide-scale accounting fraud where things that really belong in one category are placed in another category for narrative effect. So, for example, if you are of a mindset that you want to um, you want to hand down mandates and have people accept them, then, of course, you want COVID to look as bad as possible so the mandates feel necessary. Now, I'm not saying how good or bad COVID is. Well, it's not good at all. But, um, but I'm not saying that we know the answer to that question, but I am saying but if your purpose was to get people to accept stuff and you wanted COVID to be really, really frightening, then you would want lots and lots of people in the ca- the column that says died of COVID and therefore died with COVID tends to get shoved over into died of COVID. And we've seen this again and again. Now you can say, look, this is complex. It's an emerging situation. It's very hard to figure out how to do these things, give these people a break. But the problem is every single instance goes in the same damn direction, right? You can predict where the accounting errors will be and in what direction they will go based on the public health narrative that is being dispensed to us. And so with the uh, caveat that all of these data streams are polluted and therefore it is not clear that we have actually had more deaths in 2021 than we did in uh, 2020 from COVID, let's take that claim at it at face value and let's put it in proper context. What does that really mean? 
Before you do that, um, would it be useful to hear what the context is that those who are reporting on it are saying about it? Or does, or is there not even an attempt at inter- interpretation? I saw very little interpretation okay. of any kind. It was the it's, grim it's milestone. Just, it's just a sort of you know, a, fear, a, a fear headline. Yeah, it's a formulaic presentation. Okay. We've passed a grim milestone. Without more, even any attempted interpretation. More murders this year than last year, you know, and it's only December 1st or something yeah, like that. I mean, this. I guess it used to be, even in a sort of a lightly journalistic article, you know, two, three, eight paragraphs in, there would be at least an attempt at, you know, why could this be? Why might this be? And I just, I haven't seen any of these pieces yet, so I, I don't know. Well, let's just say there were a lot of them, but it was a very narrow report that they were uh, passing along. So, but anyway, okay. let's take it at face value. Face value, more people have died in, uh, in 2021 as of mid-November than had died in all of 2020 from COVID. In the U.S. In the U.S. Well, what that suggests to me is that what we are doing has made things far worse, not a little worse by the residual of everything that happened after mid-November being on top of what had already happened in 2020. That would be an even comparison. But we can't make an even comparison. We shouldn't make an even comparison because... One of the facts that public health authorities have uh, been uh, doing everything to dodge is that the immunity, at least to Delta variant, of people who have natural immunity, let's separate natural immunity from uh, innate immunity. Innate immunity would be the immunity that we all carry around to pathogens. It's nonspecific. It's very general, but it keeps lots of us from getting sick most of the time. Natural immunity in this case is immunity when you've contracted COVID, your immune system has successfully fought it off and you have specific antibodies and uh, T cells that are adapted to fend off this particular virus with its various antigens. It's messier, but um, immunity acquired through infection is more clean. Uh, it's you know it's, it takes longer to say, but natural immunity could mean so many different things and has already been used to mean lots of different things. But immunity acquired through infection is would be my preferred way of saying that. Just to be clear, as as we're trying to communicate with you know, clarity. Right. Oh, I agree. Natural immunity is an ambiguous term because, you know, natural immunity just by common parlance could mean innate immunity. It just doesn't have to. Mm -hmm. So it's a, I agree, uh, immunity acquired uh, naturally through infection um, is what we're after, which is an adaptive immunity. It is the immune system learning uh, the formula for the disease. And it is what vaccines um, utilize, they create something else, vaccine-induced immunity, they create something using that same mechanism. So what we are talking about here is natural immunity acquired through infection. Now, what has changed between 2020 and 2021 is the number of people who have had that infection and have therefore generated robust natural immunity. And the immunity, indeed... Well, that's not the only thing that's changed between 2020 and 2021. There's another big elephant in the room. Well, there's lots of elephants in the room. But let's just say we know, before we get to new variants, let's just say, with respect to prior variants, either original variants or anything up through Delta, immunity acquired through infection appears to be an exceedingly good and long-lasting preventive from getting a second infection. Right. So what has changed, the big deal, is at the end of 2020, something like a third of the population had had COVID, right? At the 
At this point in 2021, something like half the population has had COVID and therefore has very robust immunity. So what it means for more people to have died before we get to the end of the year here in 2021 than died in all of 2020 is not only that it will be slightly more deaths, but it's slightly more deaths on a background that is much more immune. That's before you ever get to the vaccines. So one thing to infer from this is if that information is correct, whatever we are doing is making things worse, right? That's, there it is. That's the punchline, right? Um, if it is true that more people have died in 2021 of COVID than died in 2020 of COVID, then the public health policy is not working. Right. And this is true. Not only the easiest category to say should have made this a lower number, not a higher number, is the number of people who are safe from infection by virtue of having had COVID already. Mm -hmm. Right. But it is also true that a disease like this, really any disease, will tend to eliminate the most vulnerable first. Right. The people who have the most feeble innate immunity that is not generated by infection will be the most likely to contract the disease and the most likely to succumb to it. And so not only do we have a population in which many more people have uh, infection have derived, recovered, have in, been infected and recovered, have been infected and recovered and are therefore effectively immune to the disease, mm -hmm. but we also have unfortunately lost many of the people who are most vulnerable. So for this number to be going up is an indication of the complete failure of our policy. Now you yeah. can extend that analysis further, but at least that far, this is really what we ought to be talking about. Well, it's also true, of course, that we don't you know, we we don't know the long term fill in the blank, right? Like, you know, for anything with COVID, we don't know the long term anything because it hasn't been around for that long. And so, although, and I didn't go back and figure out exactly which episodes we talked about on, but there was one episode where we went into it extensively and a few others where we talked about the comparison in uh, immunity from immunity acquired through infection versus immunity acquired through vaccination. And what these papers found was, if, if memory serves, I think they stopped they stopped tracking the patient outcomes at, it was either six or eight months post-infection. And they found no falling off of immunity acquired through infection in that amount of time, whereas the immunity acquired through vaccination was a much shorter-lived duration. Uh, but so what we do have is very compelling evidence that the immunity acquired through infection, the so-called natural immunity, is more robust and more long-lived, is more robust in terms of um, working against multiple variants, including including Delta, and uh, more long-lived than the immunity achieved through vaccination. But we don't know that after you know 10 months or 12 months or a year and a half, say, you know, for, for those people who were infected with COVID in the spring of 2020, maybe their immunity acquired through infection is in fact waning because this is that kind of disease. We should be able to know some of those answers by now, but I've seen nothing even attempting to do that analysis. I have spoken with uh, some of the excellent doctors who have um, bucked the narrative about this and talked to them about what they're seeing in mm -hmm. their, their clinical practice. And I believe- With the, regard to return patients coming down with it again after a very long period. Right. I okay. believe our, our this is all- pretty uh, new variant that yeah. has been announced to all of us in the last two days. Yep. But to the prior variants up through Delta, what we do see so far, according to these doctors, is that that immunity is durable all the way. And the implication is, as far as we know, it's a lifelong immunity. Right. We can't know well, that again, for sure yet. But we, we can't. We can't know that. But okay. So anecdotally, we're hearing that uh, the 
immunity acquired through infection does seem to be durable even beyond what the research has been able to show so far. Yes, and that is not... And again, it's not that the research, that any research is showing the opposite. It's just that it hasn't been, it hasn't gone on long enough to show longer lasting immunity. Right, but the point is that's actually not an unusual situation at all. Many diseases cause lifelong immunity. The immune system is an absolutely glorious complex system, and this is what it does for a living. And, you know, there are diseases for which it doesn't work because they have a, they have evolved a mechanism that continually evades. In other words, they pay the price for something like an extremely high mutation rate, and they get the benefit of becoming invisible over time. But, you know, I would say that that is the exception, not the rule. That requires selection to have confronted this problem, and it's sort of a 2.0 version of the arms race. Um, But for many diseases, there's just simply lifelong immunity, and so far as we know, this appears to be one. Yeah. Yep. Is that it? Yeah, I think that about does it. Okay. Uh, You also wanted to talk about the new variant some, or? Sure. Is this that spot? I think so, because uh, none of the other things that we were going to talk about really has to do with COVID. Yeah, I think um, we will of course return to this maybe next week because we will of course know a lot more this is really a very new uh, story but you know i think everybody is rushing to formulate a position over what has been called new and omicron i must say i don't like these terms i am beginning to feel that whatever is true of the actual biological phenomenon there is clearly a narrative phenomenon riding on it. And I wonder if Omicron is not uh, part of a slick presentation that is supposed to get us to feel clever for being in on the new nomenclature, which you have to learn. If it's not a little bit like ordering, you know, a, uh, a vente Americano with room for cream, right? And the idea is you feel clever for knowing that vente is code for whatever the hell size that is, which I don't know because I'm not cool. 20. But what? It's going to be 20, isn't it? I don't know. I mean, it sounds like the number 20 to me. It does sound like the number 20. It hadn't even we, occurred we, to me. I've never actually gone to Starbucks, but I think that's a Starbucks thing, and that sounds like 20 to me. 20 what, ounces? Yeah. Okay. So. All right. That would be cool. All right. Um, I think I'm going to go get one. That sounds kind of good. But um, but in any case, I worry. Some things we just don't know at all. Yeah. I worry about a number You're of things voice. here, and I think people should start tracking the story, but you've got to track it as two different stories. Mm-hmm. One, there is a biological phenomenon. Presumably, there is a new variant, right? Mm-hmm. It came from somewhere. It does something. It has characteristics. I think people have jumped to the conclusion that because it appears to be highly infectious, that this is a disaster. Now, it could be a disaster, but I don't think we know that until we know how virulent it is, right? In other words, there has been too much talk since the beginning of the pandemic of, oh, viruses tend to evolve to become uh, less damaging to their hosts. There's truth in this evolutionarily, but all bets are off in the case of a virus that likely came from a laboratory experiment designed to enhance it in certain, certain ways. But nonetheless, it is possible that a variant that is more infectious but less destructive could actually rescue us from our terrible public health uh, response, mm-hmm. right? Not saying that's what's happening. I have no idea. This is right. far too new. But I do think that that what you at least want to have a, whoa, slow down. We want to know more about this variant before we know whether we know how to feel about it. Yeah. Um, if it were... <clears throat> 
more transmissible, um, but less virulent, doing less damage to the hosts that it infects. Uh, this might actually be the thing that ends that ends this hell that we are all forced to live in at the moment. Um, and um, it is also true that so you know there just there are a number of things that are true of earlier variants that may or may not be true of this later one and um some you know among other things things like degree of transmissibility and um amount of harm that it does you know uh, but amount of harm that it does per different demographic groups so we know that the versions of covid that we are more familiar with uh preferentially go after <clears throat> you, the older you are, the sicker you are, um, and then there are a few other demographic factors like you're more likely to get sick if you're male, if you have dark skin, um, and that there are a number. You know, if you're institutionalized, like if you don't get outside very much, um, and then there are no, you know the kinds of sickness um, include many, but especially things like um, uh, lung and kidney disease, and some kinds of cancers seem to um, really correspond with with bad outcomes. So, you know, does the new variant change any of those truths? And um, you know, I think as as we have talked about privately, one of the thing, one of the ways that it it could be different um, for reasons that we aren't getting into, like you know, why might it have changed? But you know, one of the things that would be very dire for all of us is if it started uh, to infect and really cause serious harm to younger people the way that it has not um, hardly begun to do yet. Right. Right, which is but, actually a prediction of Geert uh, Vandenbosch's model. Yeah, um, which is that it would expand it's expand uh, the populations into which it's 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 moving. Although um, you know, it could also spread and sort of become background and not uh, and and not be doing the kinds of harm that it has yet to begin to begin to be doing to young people. I mean, there's also the question, and I don't, I haven't, I've really not looked at this new variant hardly at all. But I wondered with regard to the Delta and you know the other variants what what you and I have been wondering for decades now with regard to boundaries between categories and biological systems, right? Um, that, you know, species is a, a necessary concept with which uh, evolutionary biologists divide up the world, but that doesn't mean that the organisms in question recognize those boundaries as such. And, you know, what on what basis are new variants being um, described and carved out and named? And given that I am certain that you could make an argument, a compelling argument, to name new variants in a lot of places that they haven't been named at a lot of moments that they haven't been named, that raises the question of what other factors, for instance, political factors, are going into the naming of new variants at particular places at particular times. Yeah, in this case, um, I think the the argument that this is indeed a new variant worthy of naming um, appears to be almost absurdly strong by virtue of how many different mutations we are talking about. Mm. Now, I will also say... So, but doesn't that raise the question of whether or not, um, so re relate, relate to this party, and it's been, you know, it's been, there are, you know, three intermediate forms that we didn't name that have been out there circulating, and it's been accumulating mutations, and now we finally see it in these, in these patients, and oh, now we're going to name it because we see a clear boundary, but at the point that you see a clear boundary, that suggests that there was some time between now and the last time you looked. Well, that's part of the problem here is right. that so far, and again, we're nowhere in terms of uh, time from our right. awareness of this thing. So, you know, it's it's very early to be discussing anything. But there is something very weird about this variant and what it implies about what must have happened evolutionarily. In fact, it might not even add up at all. 
Mm. Right. So I don't know what that is. Do you want to say anything more about that? Yeah, I do. You've got a bunch of different mutations, right? Many of which appear to be uh, alarmingly well targeted from the point of view of escaping potentially both uh, natural immunity and vaccine immunity. Um, The problem is that doesn't tell a very clean story about where such a thing would have come from, because in general, a new mutation that created some ability to escape from some kind of widely existing immunity would tend to bring with it a generic random background, right? The critter that happened to have the mutation that happened to be good at escaping either vaccine immunity or natural immunity, right, would be effectively random with respect to the rest of what it contained in its genome. So the idea that suddenly we're confronted with something that has a bunch of useful mutations suggests some process that isn't described here. What's more, as I understand it, the spike protein isn't modified, right? In fact, the spike protein looks primitive. It looks like it stretches back and has experienced no evolution over many months. So I don't know what to make of any of this. Hmm. Um, I will say... That's very confusing. Well, you know, it may or may not be confusing. I think the problem is when we were talking about lab leak, there was an explanation. You know, what what was the intermediate host? Where's the intermediate host, right? How did this thing get from horseshoe bats to people and make all of these different changes? And the answer was, well, you're looking for a population of animals. You should be looking for a laboratory, Right. Yeah. If you're looking for a laboratory, intermediate host, got it. Okay, a laboratory has complex processes. It has things it's trying to accomplish. So anyway, I don't know why this story doesn't make sense. Maybe next week we'll know why it does make sense. But so far what I've heard is the invocation of an untreated HIV-positive person who would therefore have an unusual immune system. And effectively what's being suggested is that this one individual constitutes an incredible gain-of-function de facto gain-of-function experiment. In Wait, which, there's, there's a patient zero that has been Oh, we don't proposed, know the patient but that's, zero. This but, has been a model. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. A, um, a hypothetical patient zero that was uh, HIV positive, but out there in the world patient in whom this might have originated. Right. But I got to tell you, this is one of these things. Sometimes when molecular biologists there's this nasty habit they have because all biologists are in theory working in an evolutionary realm. There's sort of this nasty habit of imagining there isn't much to understand about the way evolution works, survival Mm -hmm. of the fittest, that's about it, right? Right. And so when molecular biologists come up with something, they will very often um, toss out an evolutionary explanation for it that isn't very high quality and doesn't stand up to even a little bit of scrutiny. And I wonder, you know, we saw this um, last week with the suggestion that what happened to SARS-CoV-2 in Japan was that the uh, virus thought better of it and <laughs> collapsed, right? And do I mean there was a lot of like adaptive languagey arm waving stuff, which people imagine is what we do over in evolution space. Was, it was like you know selective forces went boom or right. something like it was. It was insanely mystical thinking, but. You know, again, in the guise of sort of a sciencey looking set of people, and it it really just didn't make sense. Well, right? let's put it this way: it could make sense given another factor that was never discussed. Mm-hmm. Right? You would need something to push the virus in this direction before it became unstable. In other words, 
you know, uh, our audience probably will mostly not know that my expertise is trade-offs, that that's what I did my dissertation on. So maybe at one moment I was the world's leading expert on biological trade-offs. But the point is, you can sometimes borrow... But at what cost? <laughs> that's a good joke. Yeah. Um, you can sometimes push a, uh, a critter, mm -hmm. including a, a virus, into a corner, right? Yeah. So, for example, he's not talking metaphor. I mean, he's not talking literally. I've never seen him push organisms into corners. Uh, I, I mean, occasionally you've had to corner a mouse. Actually, like, yeah. can we just get or this out of the a, house? Even a cat yeah. or a dog, if you're going to, you know, clean out its ears. But um, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> But in any case, let's just take an example. Metaphorical cornering of organisms. Go. Yeah. So yes. there was a result years ago. Some people will have seen news reports of it because it was, of course, oh, very tantalizing. Are we about to cure aging? But um, there was a simple alteration that was made to the model organism worm C. elegans that caused them to live much longer, like a double its lifespan, mm -hmm. right? And I, I saw that and I was like, yeah, okay, but what capacity of this <laughs> yeah. creature did you just turn off? Because right. if it were true that you could just simply make them live twice as long with a simple genetic alteration, selection would have done it. So the lady worms look at those worms and say, oh, no, <laughs> oh, no, oh, no, no, oh, no. no. <laughs> I've seen this before. Um, but, and in this case, we now know what it was, which was they borrowed from its ability to endure famine. Right. Mm. And so the point is, did you just improve them? As no. long as they lived in an abundant world. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So as yep. long as they lived in the lab, it was cool. Yeah. Um, so the question is, is there something? Oh, in another version of this, you can see with the with the way HIV was ultimately managed, that it's managed with a triple drug cocktail. Mm -hmm. Another reason that that works is because you can put the virus in a bind, right? Each of these drugs has an effect. And basically, if it evolves to compensate for one it makes itself more vulnerable to mm -hmm. the others and so it's you know it's yeah. you can drive it back and forth between these you know, right keep it keep it on its feet as right. it were and so something in japan could have driven the virus to make a bad choice about how much mutation to accept and then it became incoherent but you need the something yeah. and the something could you know i'm not saying it is but it could be something like the drug that shall not be named Mm -hmm. Right, that could potentially push a virus into making compromises that were not wise in the end and caused it to be defeated by immunity or whatever. <laughs> um, but the basic point is, you need something else for that story to make any sense. Otherwise, you're just hand waving, right? Yeah. And in this case, this idea of oh, an immunocompromised person is the reason that this virus has you know a bunch of different clever alterations, right? That sounds like another really hand wavy argument. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I remain to be convinced that there's any explanation at all that would have done what we've so far been told has happened to this variant. And in light of that, I would just advise a couple of different kinds of caution. One, we need to separate our understanding of what is actually true of this variant from our understanding of what we are being told. Right. There's some gap between what's true. And there will always be, even if the people doing this are are well-intentioned. But this is always the problem. I mean, I, I feel like this is really, to some degree, always been the problem with media, with journalism, you know, presumably tracing as far back as any kind of journalism has existed, that there is some truth. And given that much that journalism reports on there, it, that truth may be social at some level, which means that there really are different versions of, <clears throat> of a story which seem incompatible, but both of which really do reflect what two different observers saw of the thing. But that put all that aside, the journalist who is writing the story <clears throat> is writing a story about the thing. 
And the story about the thing is never the same thing as the thing, right? right? You know, it's 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 a journalistic version of the map is not the territory, and right. you know, it, and, and pretending is- pretending that it is is um, dangerous. And I think you know, for anyone paying even the slightest bit of attention during COVID, it's just become completely clear that this is true all the time. There's in fact no way. So you, you know, you're asking all of us here. What I heard you just ask was, you know, we need to. Keep careful track of the distance, the distance between what is true about this new variant and what we are being told is true. But how can we possibly do that? Well, 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 no. What you want, you're going to have to simplify it. Even even those of us who are trying to get this stuff precisely right have Mm -hmm. to simplify it even to just discuss it. The point is you do not want a systematic bias between what is actually true and understood and the simplification that you're offering in order to discuss it, right? Yeah. You want you want it to be a, a reduction in resolution, but not a reduction in accuracy, mm-hmm. right? And this is not what we are getting. We are getting a landscape in which dots are being arrayed in front of you so that you will put them together just so and feel clever as you announce the answer, right? That is a very dangerous situation to be in, right? And it's unforgivable from the point of view of what this is doing to people's ability to calculate what is in their interest and what they should fear and all of that. We are being manipulated Mm -hmm. by those who want us to be fearful. Mm -hmm. And the problem is they are manipulating us to be fearful of something that is indeed frightening, right? They're amping up our fear about the wrong things and to a degree that isn't warranted. But nonetheless, it's not as if the fear is all unwarranted. Yep. But in any case, I would say separate out what we actually know about this from the simplified story that we are being handed. That's one thing. And then the other thing is simplify the medical question, the epidemiological question of this new variant, and the use of this story by the uh, medical authoritarians. And that's what I'm really concerned about, right? Am I worried about this new variant? Yeah. There are things we could learn about it that would make me much more relaxed, but at the moment, I'm pretty concerned about what I've heard so far. I am also even more concerned about what the medical authoritarians are going to do with that story, yeah. right? It is going to upend all sorts of things, including quite possibly the awakening that people were going through, that they had been misled, that they were now being uh, forced to things that didn't make sense, right? Like boosters. Right. So mm-hmm. the point is, the big danger here is that the new variant upends processes. It up, could upend the acquisition of natural immunity across the population. It could reset that, right? Where if we had left the thing to run its course, which I do not advocate, do not think would have been a good idea. But if we had, we would be to a certain place where such a large fraction of the population had had the disease that there weren't all that many vulnerable people. Did we do this to ourselves? That's the question. By by attempting to make things better, did we make them worse? Right? That's one possibility. And what are we about to do as we panic over this new variant? That's the other question. And so I, I think we need to have a go-slow approach. I think we need to, to be honest with you, I think we need to resist letting those who have narratively backed us into this terrible position continue to to drive the narrative. And I'm concerned about new and Omicron as, you know, part of a PR campaign designed to make us feel clever as we say, you know, scientifically jargony things to each other. So Well, feel clever beneath a strong veneer of fear. Right. It it is it is clear that we all need to be kept afraid in order to be kept manipulable. 
and um, looking at this and saying, okay, uh, better public policy is clearly necessary. You've, you know, you've described two reasons to conclude uh, positively that the public policy to date has made things worse rather than better. Uh, but regardless of what this is, you know, take whatever action you can uh, to protect yourself and to make the world a better place, but do not succumb to, oh my God, I don't know what this is. This could be terrible and therefore I'm afraid because it is the, it is the making decisions from fear that does explain actually a substantial, maybe minority, maybe not even, of the extraordinarily bad decisions that we're seeing people make. Yep. Now- uh, I this morning decided that I was going to try a different moniker just so that I could escape the um, for yourself. No, I sort of think we ought to generally adopt it. But um, anyway, I don't. I don't a moniker for yourself. No, no, a moniker <laughs> for the new variant. Oh, okay. Haven't you heard about the new variant? It's going to turn planet Earth upside down. Um, so I'm calling it COVID twenty two. Mm. Um, and uh, you know we're not there yet, right? Uh, well, but the thing is we're going to be and it this is you know the story will mature into 2022 okay i mean i i guess to be consistent though it has to be covid 21 yeah because covid 19 be. is you know supposedly discovered on december 31st of 2019 and of course you know we now have very good evidence that there's it was probably it was a few months before that but regardless even if it was if it was what we were told and what is still the mainstream story for a very long time literally the first case discovered in the last day of 2019 it's still got the 19 in its name I hear you. I hear you. But I think COVID-22 is better. Why? Um, various reasons. Uh, one, there's a catch-22 aspect. And two, the story is going to unfold in, you know, the fact is COVID-19 is a bit of a weird moniker because most of the awareness of it doesn't dawn until 2020. And so... Uh, in any case, I do think we at, ver at the very least need well, our I'm own. I'm compelled by your first reason, but not by your second. The the catch twenty two uh, connection does make it good, but it's not it's not consistent in terms of naming conventions. Yeah, I I, I hear you. I do I do hear you. But all right, um, it's going to be very interesting to see what this story does. I do think the number one thing we all have to do is not jump and keep separate analyses for what we are being manipulated into believing, what we know, and simplifications, both natural and un unnatural, that are necessary in order to have the conversation. Um, I will also say, uh, I did have a conversation with Chris Martinson this morning. It affected my thinking on this. We were on the same page, but anyway, we had a back and forth. And so anyway, mm -hmm. I would like people to register that he's another excellent person to be listening to on this topic. If you don't know who I'm talking about, check out Peak Prosperity. Sign up for that channel, and uh, I think you'll see the the two channels are quite compatible, and, and you get a lot from him. Yeah, absolutely. I don't really want to follow on with that, but you said earlier, um, don't jump. And yet, I just I have to give away what amounts to like family state secrets here. We, the four of us, I think, were recently at a at, a, at a, like a pier, which was very high over the water. And it was spray painted on the ground officially, you know, stenciled on the ground, no jumping. And you made a point of going over and jumping in place on the no jumping sign and pointing out that you were, you know, you were being rebellious. And I, you know, I think 
I think that there are a lot of ways to jump and to not jump, as you yourself have demonstrated in the last week or so, and that we might be allowed to jump in some ways and not in others. Well, that uh, that bit of rebellion there was... Uh, Maybe your least impressive rebellion to date. It was my attempt at peer review. I was not having any of it. And... You were reviewing the peer <laughs> in this case. Reviewing. It was meta-peer review. Yeah, mm-hmm, it was. Through the act of jumping. Yes. Excellent. All right. Excellent. Okay. Um... <clears throat> Oh, my God. Wow, I forgot to turn off my phone today. Yes, you did. Um, Was that somebody calling to tell you that my joke was unforgivable and that you should leave me? No, it's healthcare.gov, apparently. (laughs) Oh. Wow. It seriously is, guys. Healthcare.gov is calling me right now. They want to have a word. (laughs) Um, Now, I expect we need to sign up for our health insurance for next year. Mm. Okay. Um, This... I want to talk a little bit about uh, higher ed and universities and such, but first something, now for something completely different. Zach, if you will show my screen. Uh, this is, I've, I've mentioned a lot that I get, you know, I get these weekly reports from uh, from Johns Hopkins and from The Atlantic, and, which I shared one of last week. God, there's suddenly a lot of cat fur in the air here. Um, and also from Harper's. Harper's, uh, Harper's Magazine, which is like The Atlantic, one of the oldest running monthly uh, sort of arts and culture. I don't even know if, it's, if it thinks of itself as an arts and culture magazine, but a Leary magazine. Really extraordinary. Um, but their weekly review this week struck me because the first two sentences of the first two paragraphs uh, were uh, so very different in tone from one another. Let me just read the first sentence of the first paragraph and the first sentence of the second paragraph here. Kyle Rittenhouse, an 18-year-old who last year killed two people and wounded a third during protests against police brutality in Kenosha, Wisconsin, with an AR-15-style rifle, which he, then a minor, was prohibited from carrying in public, was acquitted of five charges, including first-degree intentional homicide and the use of a dangerous weapon. Okay, It's not as bad as it might be, but it's definitely got a tone to it. First sentence of the next uh, paragraph... Five people, three of whom were members of the Milwaukee Dancing Grannies, died in Waukesha, Wisconsin, after an SUV plowed through a Christmas parade whose theme was comfort and joy. Do we know what the SUV's motive was? <laughs> Precisely. I mean, that's, there's really not a lot more to say. And you know, there, are, there are a lot of places we could have gone here. We could have shown CNN versus, you know, like... It, this this is kind of already well done. You know, a lot of people are talking about the difference in tone and messaging between these two events, both of which could have been framed uh, along race lines. And in fact, the the Waukesha driver seems to have perhaps framed things himself along race lines, but we are not shown that version of the story in almost any of the media. And uh, just seeing in a single, in a single piece of Journalistic-ish. I mean, I don't know if the Weekly Review considers itself journalism exactly. It's a little, you know, it's a little bit uh, pithy. It's a sometimes it gets a little tongue in cheek. It it puts things in counterpoint that don't necessarily go to go together, but make you sort of make your head spin a little bit. Um, but the fact is that those two sentences are both in here, and they suggest um, really very different conclusions, at least in the minds of the people having written this, about whether or not, in the first case. There was, uh, you know, a horrifying event that happened that was probably itself um, racist because, um, oh wait, no, police brutality actually racism mentioned at all, but you know, in 
in service of police brutality somehow, right? Whereas the second event, which was clearly done intentionally, um, there's not even really indication that that is a truth, uh, much less that this was actually potentially, um, you know, it, that it was actually quite violent and awful. Right, and so this then leaves the uh, the person who hasn't got the memo and wants to figure out what's actually going on in the position of having to uh, go to, let's say, Andy Noe's Twitter feed in order to figure out what the facts of the case might actually be, mm. right? Andy Noe, who is known to be a, a very bad person for <laughs> distributing immoral facts and unforgivable insights. Uh, <laughs> I actually have that. I haven't, yeah, I haven't been shown Andy Noe's Twitter feed in a long time, even though he and I are actually in contact off Twitter. So you would think that that would raise his profile on my Twitter feed because I know they're watching everything. But right. Interesting. No, yeah, he is. What did you, that was a great phrase that you just used about him. I think. Uh, that he is dispensing immoral facts and unforgivable insults. <laughs> um, yes, <laughs> yeah. he, uh, he does. I mean, look, as we've said before, and, you know, Andy is a friend, but there, there, there are things about the way he reports that, uh, that trouble me sometimes. But nonetheless, it is uncanny how a story will come across the mainstream feed and it will be obvious because it's not usual for SUVs to have intent at all that something is missing from the story. Mm -hmm. And then it's worth going to Andy Noe's Twitter feed to see whether or not perhaps there is another side to the story. And oh, lo and behold, the SUV in this case, many will not have heard this, but had a driver. Mm -hmm. And that driver posted stuff on social media that may be relevant to his state of mind, mm -hmm. right? So Yeah, he was not a... a pure and angelic uh, shepherd of the SUV, but actually a, a man with intention, and uh, those intentions were he, not entirely, if at all, good. He did not seem lovely. No. Yes. Um, so, in any case, what a world where, you know, I mean, actually, this goes to, uh, what, is, what is Eric's phrase for this? Um, I, Eric has a phrase for this, where the journalists become actively an oh, anti-interested in mm. certain stories, right? <laughs> yes, um, that's good. And the yeah. idea is you would have to have a world in which there was anti-interest in figuring out what might have accounted for this SUV's behavior in order for people not to discover. I mean, you know, how good a journalist do you need to be to realize that when somebody drives into a crowd, it would be worth checking their social media to see if, in fact, they had discussed anger, biases, mm -hmm. uh, tactics, anything like this. No, but it doesn't, it doesn't go in the direction that we're supposed to be talking about now. Right. Uh, because, um, because violence in that direction has been, uh, too often, uh, overreported in the past and therefore we shall underreport it now or something. So, so goes the ridiculously bad analysis. Right. Which actually raises, uh, another sort of linking point between the topics we've been discussing so far, which is that there has been this um, mind-numbing bias in terms of what could be reported uh, on issues of race, gender, equality, equity, etc. And it is obviously a religious cult phenomenon. Mm -hmm. um, and I will just point out that we are in the same predicament with the, uh, with the pandemic 
And so uh, we were having a little discussion on Twitter this morning about what the right term is. The term I've been using is medically woke. We have all of these medically woke folks mm. who are dispensing the public health narrative as if it was scientifically well-founded. Um, but the fascinating thing to me, the thing I still can't get over, is how many people who on the subject of original flavor woke got it right and figured out that this was a cult and were having none of it who have become medically woke and are now using those same tactics deployed in the same way, the same cult-like behavior. But not just using the same tactics, but have fallen prey to the same uh, sort of generic homogenizing um, analytical tools when told, you know, when they're told to jump, they do jump. Yeah, right? they jump. And, and, they and then they use the same, you know, your point was, and then they use the same tactics as, you know, woke 1.0 to enforce the things that they've concluded. But the point is that they haven't concluded anything, just like, you know, woke 1.0, woke 2.0. Um, it's not the people um, who were enforcing these things who are doing the concluding. They may be uh, deluded into thinking that they are doing the concluding, but they have actually been handed uh, a set of conclusions. And in the case of, you know, woke 1.0, because it ran so counter to everyone's, frankly, excuse me, but lived experience, you know, that, you know, college campuses were bastions of white supremacy and everything. A lot of people could say, wait, no, I don't think so. Not at all. But because this, you know, if, if I, I like, I like your naming here, woke 2.0, medical, medically woke, um, so many people really recognize that they have been failed by an educational system. They don't know how to assess scientific or medical information. They don't even necessarily know when they have been given simply a conclusion versus the data with which they could do their own analysis if they had those skills. And so they do accept a conclusion, but somehow have obscured from themselves that they didn't do their own analysis. They think they've done their own analysis. And then when they go marching out into the world to, you know, tromp on those people who actually have done some of their own analysis and have come to a different conclusion, um, they think that they are being righteous and, um, and saving the world. No, it's like, it's like they have ordered from the back of a comic book a, uh, a detective kit. And part of it, you know, it comes with a magnifying glass and a, 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 a um, Sherlock Holmes, you know, deer hunter hat or whatever, right? And it comes with a book, right? You're a sleuth and you're going to connect the dots. But the book is one of those connect the dots books that kids, I guess, want. It's just book. literally dots. It's just it's numbered yeah. dots and you connect them and it, it makes a picture. <laughs> and so they're constantly, oh, I see. you know, yeah. patting themselves on the back for discovering the villain, mm -hmm. which is sometimes and us. And actually what they've done is demonstrate that they can count by ones. Right. They've. They, they can connect dots that have been placed in front of them for the purpose of connecting. Mm, and it's, yeah, that's uh, good. it's very disturbing. That is good. So this actually does, I'm going to switch around. I wanted to talk a fair bit about education, but um, we both had pieces published this week. And I think we're not going to end up talking much about yours, but maybe we'll save to the end just to, to mention what it is. But um, the piece that I published on natural selections on my Substack this week is about what is wrong with higher ed. And uh, I talk a lot about the problems with how science is funded and what it has meant to how, you know, how good scientists are, what they do, and also then how the most ambitious scientists are basically whisked away from the teaching and governance part of universities. Uh, but the excerpt that I specifically wanted, there's two excerpts that I wanted to share. One of them is apropos uh, what you are talking about, uh, Brett. I will start by, yep, here we go. So it's higher ed needs a reboot, but being anti-woke won't be sufficient. Uh, and it's you know, it's a long piece, and I'll actually be reading this aloud uh, for everyone for my uh, Tuesday post this week. Um, but I'm going to start right now with a just a 
small excerpt from the very end of the section. Sorry, I'm making people probably dizzy. Um, how science is funded. Um, I was going to read this whole section, but uh, not going to. And then read the woke revolution. If we are to be free, we need the scientific process to be free. Instead, money is driving what questions get asked. As a result, some research that passes for science is not worthy of the name. And other research, which would be science had it been allowed to happen, never gets done. This is perhaps the largest problem of all at modern universities. The Woke Revolution. Into this environment arrived an ideology, which quickly became so widely adopted that it can now justly be called a revolution. As science and scientists were being bought by market forces, the door was left open for more patently craven forms of anti-intellectualism. Flying under the beautiful-sounding banner of social justice, embodied by growing legions of diversity, equity, and inclusion, officers and administrators, it is most succinctly called woke. What social justice aspires to, or claims to aspire to, is the adoption of policies that recognize past and ongoing bias in society, reduces such bias going forward, and helps those who have been negatively affected by it. In practice, though, it is authoritarian, dogmatic, illiberal, and mean. As linguist John McWhorter writes in his new book, Woke Racism, How a New Religion Has Betrayed Black America, this ideology directly blocks the ability of people who adhere to it from getting ahead. Of the movement's three key words, diversity, equity, and inclusion, only one is an accurate representation of what the movement stands for. The woke do not embrace or pursue diversity. They are on a mission to reduce human experience and thought to a single note, one, one that agrees with the conclusions that they have already arrived at. And the woke are not inclusive, Indeed, they would exclude all those who disagree with them to the point of deplatforming and preventing dissenters from speaking. The movement that claims to advocate for diversity, equity, and inclusion is therefore both anti-diversity and exclusionary. What may be surprising to those not already immersed in this landscape, however, is that the woke revolution really is about equity. The disconnect is that equity doesn't mean what you probably think it means. The concept of equity has been around since at least 1981, when it was included in the first principles of the American Society for Public Administration. The ASPA had this to say about a key distinction. Equality, they defined as citizen A being equal to citizen B. Equity, they defined as adjusting shares so that citizen A is made equal with citizen B. Many people, though, when they hear the word equity, synonymize it with equality. We 21st century weird people broadly, nearly universally, value equality. We are all equal under the law, and we ought to defend that fiercely. Equality refers to having equality of opportunity. Equity, in direct contrast, promotes equality of outcome. This is a dystopian idea that was brilliantly satirized in Vonnegut's short story, Harris and Bergeron, wherein those with greater ability are handicapped in order to bring society into full compliance. And here's this, just the first paragraph of Harris and Bergeron. A very short, short story worth everyone reading it. The year was 2081, and everybody was finally equal. They weren't only equal before God and the law. They were equal every which way. Nobody was smarter than anybody else. Nobody was better looking than anybody else. Nobody was stronger or quicker than anybody else. All this equality was due to the 211th, 212th, and 213th Amendments to the Constitution and to the unceasing vigilance of agents of the United States Handicapper General. So this is absolutely apropos a discussion of uh, medically woke, right? I mean, we are. this is the same kind of process as you were pointing out you say on Twitter this morning, but I've heard you point it out elsewhere. Yeah, it is the same kind of, I mean, it's uncanny how much the same kind of process <laughs> it is. Yes. And, you know, we have been on the wrong end of it twice now in two very different contexts. Mm -hmm. And so it's just like, 
you can see that it's the same. Okay, but I'm, I'm, I'm playing the interviewer here now. Yeah. Aren't you just looking for trouble, though? Aren't you just interested in conflict? No, I would say I believe the actual diagnosis is um, a bit insensitive to social signals or indifferent to them in some sense. And so I think the point is if you're sensitive at a normal level, you get don't go there, girlfriend, away from the dangerous thing, right? And it doesn't work for everybody on every topic. But if your point is, actually, I don't speak that language. I don't know what mm -hmm. don't go there, girlfriend, means, mm -hmm. right? And you just keep pursuing things. Then what you keep finding is yeah, the, the devil on, on our shoulder is, you're not the boss of me. <laughs> <laughs> right. But the point is you will keep discovering the delta between the official story and what you can deduce if you do your own work. And the problem is if that delta is small, it's not a big ruined. deal. If it, the delta is big, then you just keep discovering this chasm and you're like the idiot who doesn't get the message that pointing that out is bad for you, right? Yeah. Still naked, guys. Emperor is still naked. Still naked, right. It's a different emperor. Really? Are you sure? Because it kind of looks like the same guy because I saw him naked before. <laughs> He's still there. <laughs> still no clothes. Still dresses to the right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So anyway, we, it, it's, it, it's a fascinating social process and, um, one that I, I will say I've had the sense at the beginning of this last week, this last week. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's, it was an increasing sense over time mm -hmm. that enough people around the world were waking up mm -hmm. to what was happening, that it was like, reason was returning right and i fear that new variant you know is hide under your bed right this isn't the great reset this is a <laughs> you know this is there was some process running in the computer that the owner of the computer was displeased by and they couldn't figure out how to turn it off so they've unplugged it and you know now everything is new again as it were um mm -hmm. It's it's the new reset. It's the new reset. Yeah, and you exactly. Um, well, I hope you're wrong. I hope I you know obviously obviously I hope you're wrong in this case. And you know we have hoped we were wrong in many cases. Yeah. Um, and uh, unfortunately, the things that we have hoped we were wrong about, uh, we haven't, for the most part, with you know trivial examples, I'm sure, but um, seen the evidence that that has been the case. Yes. Yeah. Now I will just say one last thing. Yeah. Um, that Harrison Bergeron thing, yeah. uh, it has a particular relevance in our story, actually, relative to our encounter with Woke One, Yeah, right? Which was that as Evergreen melted down around us, mm -hmm. a student of mine, a current student of mine who had been in the current class, then. current then, yeah. had been in the class in which I had put the model for witch hunts and how they work up on the board, somebody who was watching this happen in real time. Uh, a black woman, mm -hmm. took me aside as protests and everything else was going on. Mm -hmm. And she said, you have to read this story. Mm -hmm. Harrison Bergeron is like, less <laughs> time for reading stories this week than ever before in my life. And she's like, no, you have to read this story, mm -hmm. right? And she ultimately did persuade me even then to read the thing. It was like, okay, very interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that yeah, that's 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 right. It is. I mean, too bad we don't have Kurt, Kurt Vonnegut anymore, 
his his take would be very interesting. If only he had written things that we could return to. Um, but we do, and uh, you know, I have yet to read anything of his that I didn't find deeply valuable. But the, you know, a link to an online version of the story is in my piece here, so uh, you can find it there. Uh, one more short excerpt from this this week's piece in Natural Selections. If you want to show my screen here, Zachary. Okay, I am scrolling down. So there's sections on what college faculty need to be capable of. And now my screen is freezing. Uh, a little story of how I ended up at Evergreen and then Seeking the Extraordinary, just the last three paragraphs of the piece. Some extraordinary minds are well suited to standard metrics and are discoverable with such metrics. Are you a compliant and organized enough young person to sit still and turn in neat copied work by deadline? Thus you're earning yourself the freedom to excel in all the academic places that appealed to you? I was. I tested well and earned good grades and was both smart and presentable, and although, yes, I was always itching to go outside, I also took pride in putting together careful, well-presented work that expanded my own thinking. But I have known hundreds, perhaps thousands, but easily hundreds, of extraordinary people who were so utterly failed by school that they never got access to the freedom to explore and excel. English courses where Dostoevsky and Solzhenitsyn are on the reading list are reserved for the good students. Everyone else has to diagram sentences. Math classes where the beauty and connections in math are on full display are similarly reserved for the good students. Everyone else gets fed abstract repetition and memorization of mnemonics. In both cases, uninspired curricula and pedagogy practically guarantee failure. We need universities that expand the human mind. We are all born inquisitive, observant, and curious. All too often, the modern university is where people learn to conform, make social connections, and game systems. But universities should and can and must be where we learn to hone our questions, expand our intellectual repertoire, and distinguish between good answers and bad. In order to solve the problems that we face in the 21st century, we are going to need such universities very, very soon. Yes. Um, it's particularly poignant as somebody who was on the other side. As I talk about earlier in this in this essay a little bit. Yep. Uh, uh, yes, I was, uh, because I was not good at doing schoolwork as a result of what would be dyslexia if dyslexia was a real thing, uh, yeah, I got dumb-tracked. Right. And I think the vast majority of people who are in a position to think about uh, recreating education are those who were already on the inside. And there aren't that many of us who are on the inside, who also have real insight into what the brains of the people who were told they were stupid look like. And, you know, this is a point that we've made many times, many places, including in the school chapter of our of Hunter Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century, lots of places. But um, too, much, too many attempts to, for instance, fix education, be it so-called lower ed or higher ed, take the established tropes, the established forms, and just skim the woke off the top because it's gone bad, right? It started out bad, it's gone bad. It's not going to do it. Oh yeah, yeah. That that is not going to fix anything. You're gonna you're gonna continue to get some people like me who were able to do well enough within the system to then get access to all the goodies, all the educational goodies, all the actually challenging, hard, you know, difficult, sometimes mutually incompatible things that then I got to wrestle with in real time because I'd somehow earned it from some combination of of personality traits, really. And the fact is that most. Some people who are so-called bad in school aren't up to the challenge. But we ran into so few of those people at Evergreen 
a non-selective college full of people who had, you know, often gotten their GEDs rather than graduating high school, have been unschooled, homeschooled, they were veterans, you know, all of these, all of this crazy diversity, along with a lot of students who were straight from K-12, you know, who had, who had, who had been in school since they were five and had never left and had come straight to college. And the number of people who, yeah, weren't totally up to speed with some of the cultural norms of academia was pretty high and who needed a little bit of lenience in terms of some things like, for instance, maybe copy editing or maybe, oh, you've been so failed by your education that you can't do basic math and I'm expecting you to do somewhat less basic math. So I'm going to need to figure out a way without this being you know, my full-time job to get you basic math enough um, to be able to do the more interesting stuff. That's supposed to be happening in second grade and fourth grade and sixth grade and eighth grade, not in college. But the idea that in college, if you haven't already uh, gotten those skills, we can throw you away is, is horrifying. And it's not what higher ed should be about. No. If you survive it and you don't end up taking uh, their word for your capacity, it does free you from what happens when the authority goes rogue and, and starts saying bullshit because you learn to ignore it right um which did not you know we know from many students that that did not happen lots of them did take the pronouncements from these uh educational authorities about their capacity and were damaged by it yes um so anyway yeah, it's it's a it's a tragedy but i i must say i do not understand this mindset that imagines that uh well we know what happened to the universities they went woke and it's like, no, universities had uh, an acquired immunodeficiency, and then you want to cure the pneumonia that killed them. Yeah. Right? It's much like the mistake of many modern doctors treating symptoms rather than the disease. Right. You're going to treat the symptom, and then you are going to produce, if you succeed, you will produce exactly the university that was vulnerable to that disease. And then you'll find out what the next version of that disease is. It's not useful. That's right. Um, which That's is, right. you know, you and I spent a year uh, trying to understand how we might um, build a next generation higher ed institution. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we realized this. It was never about solving the woke problem. It was, mm -hmm. it was like obvious that the woke problem needs to be solved, but it's square one with respect to what you build in place of the now failed yeah. university system. Necessary, but so far from sufficient as to not even really at some level be worth mentioning it when thinking about how to design the new thing. In a weird way, I'm not even sure it's necessary because the point is in a healthy system, if you built a healthy system, Woke wouldn't stand a chance if people thought that what they were getting in school was mm. valuable and it was going to empower them to get a better job, to do things that they cared about, to be more insightful, they would tell the woke to go away. And it is only because they were getting very little out of that system mm. that many were open to the idea that they were entitled to demand things through their university from the world rather than to become capable. That actually reminds me of a John Taylor Gatto quote that I happen to see on Twitter today, but we've talked about him before. I'm a huge fan of his. He, he's written, he's, he's unfortunately recently dead. He was an extraordinary educator who wrote, among other books, uh, Weapons of Mass Instruction. I don't know where this quote is from. And again, I just got it off Twitter, but he wrote, he said, apparently, our cultural dilemma has nothing to do with children who don't read very well. It lies instead in the difficulty of finding a way to restore meaning and purpose to modern life. So this is this is apropos what you're talking Absolutely. about. Absolutely. Um, and one one more thing to riff on before we before we sign off for the week. 
One of my patrons reminded me of a section from this book, which I adore, um, and I'm going to read a, a short version from it. It's Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, An Inquiry into Values by Robert Persig, uh, originally published, geez, I forgot when, um, a while ago. In um, the past, for sure. <laughs> in the past. Um, I read it in 2009. I actually know because I read it while I was on my first study abroad trip that I ran. Um, I can't remember exactly when it was written more than 30 years ago. I'm pretty sure, but I'm not honestly sure exactly when, and I can't find it in this book at the moment. Um, 1974. Okay. So 47 years ago, um, something, uh, in it, the author has a sort of, a sort of a character that is a little bit like him, Phaedrus, who was a professor. And he, is speaking, let me find it, uh, about what a university is. And here is what he has to say. The real university, he said, Phaedrus, has no specific location. It owns no property, pays no salaries, and receives no material dues. The real university is a state of mind. It is that great heritage of rational thought that has been brought down to us through the centuries and which does not exist at any specific location. It's a state of mind which is regenerated throughout the centuries by a body of people who traditionally carry the title of professor, but even that title is not part of the real university. The real university is nothing less than the continuing body of reason itself. In addition to this state of mind, reason, there's a legal entity which is unfortunately called by the same name, but which is quite another thing. This is a non-profit corporation, a branch of the state with a specific address. It owns property, is capable of paying salaries, of receiving money, and of responding to legislative pressures in the process. But this second university, the legal corporation, cannot teach, does not generate new knowledge or evaluate ideas. It is not the real university at all. It is just a church building, the setting, the location at which conditions have been made favorable for the real church to exist. And he's not saying that dismissively, yeah. um, but the church of reason he's calling it. Confusion continually occurs in people who fail to see this difference, he said, Phaedrus said, and think that control of the church buildings implies control of the church. They see professors as employees of the second university who should abandon reason when told to and take orders with no backtalk, the same way employees do in other corporations. They see the second university, but fail to see the first. And here we step out of that for just a moment, and the narrator now says, I remember reading this for the first time and remarking about the analytical craftsmanship displayed. He avoided splitting the university into fields or departments and dealing with the results of that analysis. He also avoided the traditional split into students, faculty, and administration. When you split it either of those ways, you get a lot of dull stuff that doesn't really tell you much you can't get out of the official school bulletin. Mm. That is so good. Yeah. And actually, um, I've not read this. It's it's certainly on my list of books I may it's, never get it's to. It's long but, and... Yeah. Um, no, it's, a, it's it, an important it, philosophical tome, this yes, book. Yes, it's, it's a book I, I know that I would love. I've heard many excerpt, excerpts from it, and it's uh, it's important. But I would point out that, A, this is in one way uh, I like to refer to the academy because it is exactly this thing, yes. right? It's yeah. not an academy. It's the academy. And it is also the so reason— So that's the stand-in for his first university. Right? Yeah, yeah, the real university. The real university. The real yeah. university is the academy. And yeah. so the thing is— um, you and I fled jobs at an institution, mm -hmm. right? We were forced to. We were, they were literally rendered unsafe. But we became professors in exile for exactly this reason. Mm -hmm. right? Exile from 
from the one but not the other right. from the physical building that own or the the institution that owns property and uh, pays salaries and things like that mm-hmm. but the point is it didn't change anything about who we were right, right. and um that i think is a very important realization and i wish more people were had run themselves through the exercise very much so Anything else? Yeah, I think I just want to mention a couple of things that um, Great. I released this week that yes. Uh, yes, yes, yes. I think are, are worth people's time. One is yes. an interview with a, um, a woman, Betty Pizzamenti, who is uh, Australian. She lives in Melbourne. Um, and she has a tremendous sensitivity to compounds in the world mostly synthetic compounds that she encounters. Anyway, my interview with her reveals what is going on in Australia with respect to medical authoritarianism. And I would highly recommend people watch it and just listen to her. Listen to this person who is very good-natured, not the least bit bitter, and describes the absolutely Kafkaesque insanity that she is facing as someone whose position in the pandemic um, we all have been led to think about in the abstract. She is among the people who are very vulnerable. Um, So in any case, I would advocate that people check out my interview with her on Dark Horse. There's also at least one clip up on our our Clips channel is worth seeing. Mm -hmm. Um, And if people want to find it, they could go to my Twitter feed and that that would reveal it to them. The second thing, um, I was invited by Unheard to write another essay for them, this time on uh, American gun rights. And I decided to just more or less reveal my position. And I wrote an essay, uh, which I wondered if it was going to get me in a tremendous amount of trouble. And so far, no, the reception has been really, really good. But I did not know that that was going to be the case going forward. But in any case... um, it uh, it contains a number of new arguments about guns. Um, it addresses the question of what I think the meaning of the mysterious phrase about a well-regulated militia being necessary to the preservation of a free state might have been about in the minds of our uh, our founding fathers. It addresses the question of what relevance at all private guns might have uh, were a tyranny to come to... Uh, to the United States, and um, it also addresses the question about whether or not uh, what is going on in Australia is at least partly due to the different path they have taken with respect to gun rights. So in any case, I think it's a good essay. I think it's worth reading. Lots of people have responded really well to it, and if you're looking for something to read, it is their their top-of-the-page weekend essay at Unheard. That's U-N-H-E-R-D, very clever title. Um, <clears throat> and anyway, look forward to hearing what people think of it. Yeah, no, it's it's absolutely a, an excellent essay. And um, and as you will have come to expect uh, from Brett's thinking, um, it takes some unexpected turns. Yes, it does. Yeah, no, it's, it's really fabulous. All right, that I think is the end of the show for today. We are going to take a 15-minute break. Uh, as, as short as possible in order to get the tech ready for the Q&A and then be back with our live Q&A. You can ask us questions at darkhorsesubmissions.com. 
Uh, if you have logistical problems or uh, you, you, if you want to send us something, we've got a P.O. box. Um, you can send questions like that, not content questions, to darkhorsemoderator at gmail.com. We have, again, uh, the private Q&A on my Patreon tomorrow uh, at 11 a.m. We leave that up for people who can't join us live, but for people who do join us live, it's a very nice conversation that we have. Uh, we have, of course, A Hunter Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century is out there in the world, still selling well, and uh, we continue to hear from people who want to talk to us about it. It's wonderful. We're continuing to have conversations about it on podcasts that are also going out into the world. And uh, I will just remind people of the new products available at store.darkhorsepodcast.org, which is right there on the screen. For those of you watching, we got Saddle Up the Direwolves, We Ride Tonight. We've got an Epic Tabby. We've got a book, a digital book burning, and uh, YouTube community guidelines because you can't handle the truth. All right. Until next time, uh, be good to the ones you love, and eat good food, and get outside. Be well, everybody.